Hebrews chapter 10. I neglected to announce men's group, by the way. Men's group is at uh, 6.30 on Wednesday nights. We're meeting here. Uh, We're going through 1 Peter. And so uh, come on, uh, you read through 1 Peter chapter 1, and then uh, we're going to go through actually the second section of that. Um, And we're learning together how to do something called a speak Bible study. And so uh, the first week, I wasn't there this week because we, we had a weird random soccer game on a Wednesday, which we normally don't have. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the guys from Faith actually, um, I invited the men's group to come, the Faith uh, Christian team that both my uh, younger sons play on, uh, got to play against Dixon uh, under the lights, and, and we won, one to zero. So it's pretty cool. So they don't normally play public schools. We played two public schools this year. Played Oregon one night, beat them 2-0, and then the next night played Dixon and beat them 1-0. So that was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool. So uh, anyway, I didn't come to talk about soccer. During the Great Chinese Famine, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, the Great Chinese Famine of 1906-1907, a man visited a refugee camp outside of Chinkling. Chikyang. I am not... I wish if Chris Coy was here, he could help me pronounce this probably, but outside Chinkyang, uh, a lady, Mrs. Paxton, was delivering simple medicines to some of the suffering individuals, and as she made her rounds uh, to the miserable straw mat shelters within which the starving people hungered on the cold ground, she turned to the man, and seeing his startled expression, she asked, do you know what most of them are saying? Because, of course, he didn't know Chinese. She said, do you know what most of them are saying? They complain of a lack of appetite. You see, these famine victims were not hungry because they were starving. They had passed that stage of desire for food. This is a picture of the state of many people's souls today. Their souls have lost interest in or lost a longing for spiritual satisfaction because it's been starved. We've starved ourselves enough that we get to the point that we don't even desire it anymore. And that's largely what we're going to talk about in the message this morning. So for the last several weeks and months, we've been steadily working our way through the book of Hebrews. And after next week, we'll be really in the home stretch. So we're in chapter 10 right now. We'll finish chapter 10 next week. And then we'll really be in the home stretch for the rest of the year, kind of headed downhill in this thing. But the author has been expounding upon the superiority of Christ, his priestly role, and and the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And the last several, uh, excuse me, the last couple of chapters have been just hit after hit of delving deeply into what all of that means what this new covenant in Jesus' blood means. And it seemed like we were continually studying the same thing over and over because of the links of what the, excuse me, because of the links that our author takes to explain and to prove his point. And in setting up the structure and substance of the gospel that he presents in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews continually reviews the meaning of it with his audience, and that's why we see all of the rep, uh, repetition, because he's continually going over the meaning of all of these different things, and he wants to make sure that we get that, that we understand that, that his initial audience got that and understood it. And it's at this point in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, that he turns to exhorting these Jewish believers, who he's writing to, to hold on to their faith and not revert back into a religion that cannot save. 
And at the beginning, we see, you're going to see the word therefore. We're going to see the word therefore, which I've said before. Whenever we see that, we need to ask why it's there. What's it there for, right? And that's the old preacher joke. All right, when we see the word therefore, we know that points back to the previous material. In other words, we should take this following action because of what he had just said. And he gives the grounds for his passionate appeal to the believers first in this passage. We're going to read in just a second. And then he lays out that appeal. And this is one of the reasons why many people believe Paul may have been the author of Hebrews. You know, back when we started through Hebrews, I said a lot of people think Paul may have been the author. We don't know who it was. I have my doubts as to whether it was actually Paul or not. But one of the reasons why a lot of people think it may have been Paul is because of that structural thing. We see in other places in Paul's writing where he gives a theological reasoning and then he exhorts his readers to action based on the theological truths that he just unpacked. A great example of that is the book of Romans does that, or, or Paul does that. So anyway, if you've got your Bibles opened at Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to begin in verses 19 uh, through 25. Actually, we're going to be, begin in verse 19, we're going to go through... 25. And I want you to see how the author switches from straight up theological uh, exposition and teaching into, he switches into uh, practical plea for the people. So let's begin in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives. Lord God, we thank you for your word that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need anything more. We need you and we need your word. Jesus, be big here today. I pray that I would be clear in my explanation. God, I pray that... that you would just convict our hearts where we've sinned and where we've strayed away from what you have called us as those who claim Jesus, those who follow Christ, where we've strayed away from what you say is true of Christ followers. Bring us quickly to repentance and help us trust you that your death on the cross was sufficient even for me and my sin. For all time, once and for all, Jesus. God, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. That if there's anything that's just in me, you just clear it out and that you would um, help your message be clear in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Excuse me, I've been trying to not sneeze. <laughs> so that's what's been going on up here, sorry. If, you, if you're like, wow, what's wrong with pastor? He's trying not to sneeze, okay? Because uh, that's really loud in the microphone. All right. So when we begin here, he starts out, the author starts out by giving a recap of what he had just said in the previous uh, verses and chapters because 
because it's the reason that his audience and those of us who follow Christ should respond. So he says, therefore, because of this. But he goes ahead and he, he gives like a little summary. Now, the idea here behind this is that the gospel should be a catalytic thing in our lives. Because of what Jesus did, because of all that Jesus accomplished, therefore, we should do this. And he's got these Jewish Christians that he's talking to who are being tempted to fall back into uh, the old covenant Jewish ways of worship and ritual and celebration. And uh, He's saying, because Jesus accomplished all that, because you believe this, therefore, boom, do this. It's supposed to be a catalytic event, the gospel in your life. The definition of a catalyst is this. Here's why I use that word is because a catalyst is an agent that provokes or speeds significant change or action. So a catalyst, and if you're a chemistry person, like when you put a, mix something in that's a catalyst, it causes a reaction. It causes something to happen. For those Jewish Christians who were tempted and pressured into those old ways, this should prompt them, instead of falling back into those old ways, to cling tighter to the hope of the gospel. And that is what it should cause us to do as well. And he transitions from saying, okay, because of, because of Jesus has made a superior way, because Jesus has done this, then he transfers. He, he, transitions into this first point of sort of application or of encouraging them to action. And the first thing is draw near, draw near. Now, if you're taking notes, my outline, that's actually point number two, okay, is draw near. I know I said it's the first point of application, but it's actually the second point in the sermon. He wants them to respond He wants them to respond to what Jesus has done, and he wants them to respond by first drawing near. Because we have this great high priest, and because of this wonderful and superior new covenant in Jesus' blood as a once and for all sacrifice, let us therefore draw near to him. Because we can. He made it open to us on the cross when he, because he passed in the holy place, because the veil was torn, showing that we could now enter into the very throne room of God. We didn't have to go through a priest. We didn't have to go through some guy with a bowl and a knife. Okay? We can go straight to God. In the old Jewish way, they couldn't. So why, as he's writing to him, it's like, why would you want to go back to that? The, the blood of animals could never save, but why would you want to go back to that? He's encouraging them forward. He's proven through the last several verses that we have access to God. Like, we have access. Do you understand that? I, I feel like half the time when I'm preaching this, I'm just like a little kid standing up. We have access to God because I'm so excited about it, right? Because we should be excited about it. Because it's tragic that we have access to God as followers in Christ, and so many of our days we never use it. We have access. We have access to God, and we don't deserve it, yet it's true. So he wants us, he wants them and us to seize that opportunity of access to God that we have, that Christ's priesthood and sacrifice has made possible. It's here, it's now, it's available. So he says to draw near. We should reach out and draw near to God because he's made it a way so that you can by his work, his finished work on the cross. And he goes on because he doesn't just want them to draw near. He wants them to draw near in a specific way. He says with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 
A true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, pastor, great. What does that mean? What is a true heart in full assurance of faith? Well, this is a heart that evidences complete trust and devotion. A heart that evidences, or a heart that gives evidence of complete trust and devotion in Jesus. In Jesus. This fulfills the promise of a new heart for God's people in Scripture. This is to draw near to him with this true heart and full assurance of faith that evidences complete trust and devotion to him. If this is the heart that he has given us because he has given those who have trusted in him a new heart. It is a conviction or a certainty of faith that is generated in believers as a result of Christ's work on their behalf. It's nothing, you didn't gin up you didn't gin up by your hard work and your trying real hard and squeezing. You didn't gin up a true heart full of assurance of faith. It is by the work of Christ on your behalf that he produces that in us. That he gives us that new heart. He goes on and says, With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I've tried washing dishes. I washed dishes last night. Um, If I just sprinkle them, that doesn't typically get them clean. So I'm like, what does this mean? Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. No, I've got the sprayer, and I'm hammering in there on that pancake syrup. That was this morning. That wasn't yesterday. So what does that mean? Well, according to scholars, it's likely that the imagery of the sprinkling of the heart from a burdened conscience would remind the audience of Moses' sprinkling of the people with blood at the inauguration of the first covenant in Sinai. And we talked about that. And it's, that's recounted, if you missed that and you want to go back and read that, it's in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8, where it's recounted. Or it's, it's accounted for. Christians, those who've trusted in Christ alone for salvation by faith, have become participants in the new covenant, by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. This cleansing of the believer's hearts from a burdened conscience or an evil conscience is now associated with Jesus' death on the cross, with his inaugurating of the new covenant in his blood. The perfect and total cleansing through Christ's sacrifice, it removes the barrier of our sin that prevented us from having open and unhindered access to God. And his sacrifice opens that to us and makes that possible. And the promises of the new covenant are only realized, they're only realized through that. They're realized both in the church, sorry, in the church, both individually as us as individuals, but also in the church corporately. They, his first audience and us, are urged to approach God with great confidence because by Christ's blood we can. Then he says this thing about bodies washed in pure water. And we're like, okay, is that about baptism? What is that about? Well, P.T. O'Brien writes this. The sprinkling of the heart denotes an inward and spiritual cleansing, while the washing of our bodies with pure water is the outward visible sign. Christian baptism now replaces all previous cleansing rites. Now, this matches up, what he says there matches up with what we know of baptism. We understand that baptism by immersion is an outward symbol of what has happened internally. It's telling the world 
that here's what's happened to me internally. We're lowered into the water, which symbolizes dying to our sin, and we're raised up out of the water, symbolizing being raised to new life in Christ. I will add, because I said I would mention this later, I'm scheduling baptism soon, so if you'd like to be baptized or want more information about it, come talk to me this week or get a hold of me. But now let's turn our attention to the second part of our author's exhortation to these people and to us. So not only are they to draw near, but they are to hold fast to the confession of their hope. Hold fast. We're to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. So hold on to it. Hold on. Now, the idea of hope. We talk about hope a lot here, right? Because you know the name. The idea of hope in Hebrews describes the objective content of hope rather than the act of hoping. So when he talks about hope, he's talking about the objective content of that hope, not the act of hoping. Like, I really hope I get something cool for Christmas. It's not that. It's not the act of hoping. I hope Jesus comes through. It's not that act of hoping. When he talks about the confession of our hope, he is talking about the objective content of that hope. In other words, Jesus. It relates to both present and future salvation, because he who promised is faithful, and he will carry out the work he started through to completion. Now, this encouragement to hold fast is reinforced with the words without wavering. And as I prepared, I thought, oh man, this is going to make some people feel bad because they're like, hey, I waver all the time. I got doubts. And I thought people are going to be really, you know, not sure how to take that. But let me explain it this way. The expression without wavering describes the manner in which we hold fast to the confession rather than the firmness of our confession itself. Let me say that again. The words without wavering, that expression, it describes the manner in which we hold fast rather than the firmness of the confession itself. So hold on unswervingly. It's the way in which we hold on. Cling to that confession for dear life. Cling to that object of our hope Our hope is not, wow, I I hope I can hope enough. I've got hope in hope itself or faith in faith itself. That's not it. Our hope, the object item of our hope is Jesus. It's the gospel. And what you hope, your faith or your hope, is only as good as the object that you've placed that hope or that faith in. Okay? I can have a lot of faith and hope in a chair made out of toothpicks that it's going to hold me up. But that doesn't mean it's actually going to hold me up because when I sit down and actually put my faith in it, I'm going to end up on the ground and probably bleeding. But if I put my hope and faith in a chair made out of steel, something that won't crumble under pressure, it's going to show how true it is. And the basis for maintaining this confession of hope with, much, with such steadiness in God's faithfulness is that God does what he promised. 
The Old Testament and the New Testament display his faithfulness to his people. He's, he's designated as the one who promised, which means that his promises are the basis of our hope. God's promises are reliable because, as we read in chapter 6, it's impossible for God to lie. So God's faithfulness in fulfilling other promises assures that he will keep all his promises. We see God keeping his promises, and we realize that, oh, he kept those promises. He's going to keep all his promises. This brings us to the final exhortation in this section. And it's a summons to the members of the faith community, the church that he's writing to, these Hebrew Christians there, to focus their attention on conscious activities that encourage one another. These mutual activities are purposed for spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. Friends, we should be building each other up and encouraging, prompting each other towards love and good deeds. So this last uh, exhortation or action I'm titling, consider. Consider, or if you want, stir. Consider or stir. The verb, let us consider, which verses 22 through 25 revolve around, has been rendered by... uh, let us be concerned or let us care for, depending on who you read. We should be concerned about one another. But our concern for one another should not simply be about physical well-being or, uh, or hey, you know, are you sick? Are you well? How are you doing physically? Our concern for one another should also, yes, yes, physical, yes, that's fine, but should also be spiritual, be concerned for each other's spiritual well-being. So I'm going to ask you this, and I want you to just think about it. And if you've got a pen there, you might write down your answer to this if you think of one. If not, just keep it in your mind. When was the last time someone from church, other than your pastor, asked you, Hey, how's your soul? Or, how is your spiritual life? How how is your daily walk with Jesus going? Or when was the last time someone asked you, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? Friends, we don't ask these kind of questions because we don't want to be asked these kind of questions. Most of us don't want to be asked these kind of questions because we'd either have to lie about the answer or admit something that we're really uncomfortable admitting because it might damage the way someone sees us. And I believe that right there is a sign that we don't understand what the church is supposed to be. Our author mentions love here. And that actually completes a triad he has going. Which might, this might sound familiar, like triad. What are you talking about now, pastor? Faith in verse 22 hope in verse 23, and now love in 24 through 25. Faith, hope, and love. It seems like I've heard of that somewhere else. It seems like agreement in Scripture. Interesting how he connects with faith, hope, and love in those passages. But now to fulfill this responsibility to be concerned with one another, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds, good works. This presupposes that we actually have a care and a practical concern for one another, both physically and spiritually. 
It should provoke us to action. The, the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, should actually provoke us into caring for one another. So we should be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. And then he throws in this part about not straying, excuse me, about not staying away from the worship gatherings and mentions that some have habitually been doing this. Why would he say that here? Like, why, is, why are verses 24 and 25 there? Well, one of the times, one of the times when we encourage one another is when the local church gathers to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a look back at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day, drawing near. Now, I read that, and maybe some of you just got really nervous hearing that. Where is he going with this? Some people will hear that verse and immediately formulate in their minds why those verses are not talking about all of their reasons for missing church. But friends, that's dangerous to do. If you were to flip back into the book of Acts, you would read about the early church and how they had this close sense of community and they met together and worshipped together regularly. Apparently, some of these folks in Hebrews had drifted away from some of those practices. The reasons why some were neglecting their responsibility to meet together as a church are not gone into here by the author. He doesn't go into their reasons for missing, okay? Later chapters have hints, though, of some factors that may have played a part, such as persecution, indifference, or apathy. But whatever the reasoning behind their neglect, the following passage that we'll cover next time, actually, contains a warning about apostasy, implying that, and the implication in that following this passage is that those who persistently and deliberately abandon the fellowship of Christian believers are in danger of abandoning the Lord himself, just like Israel did. So if you want more on that, you've got to come back next week, because that's next week's passage. But it's, it, it, is, it is connected here, because God inspired the Bible to have things where they are for a reason. Have you heard about this strange disease that's been going around? Not COVID. There's a strange disease that's been going around for a few years called Morbus Sabbaticus. Morbus sabbaticus, better known by its common term, Sunday sickness, is a disease peculiar to some church members. The symptoms vary, but they're generally observed as this. Number one, it never lasts more than 24 hours. Number two, it never interferes with the appetite. Three, it never affects the eyes. The Sunday newspapers can be read with no pain. Television actually seems to help the eyes. Four, no doctor is ever called. Five, after a few attacks at weekly intervals, it may become chronic, even terminal. No symptoms are usually felt on Sunday. The patient, or excuse me, no symptoms are usually felt on Saturday. The patient sleeps well and wakes feeling well. He eats a hearty Sunday breakfast. Then the attack comes until services are over for the morning. The patient feels better, eats a solid dinner, and after dinner he takes a nap and watches one or two NFL games on TV. He may take a walk before supper and stop and chat with neighbors. If there are church services scheduled for Sunday evening, he'll have another short attack. Invariably, he wakes up Monday morning and rushes off to work feeling refreshed. The symptoms may not reoccur until the following Sunday, unless another service is scheduled at the church during the week. 
I found that funny story, a you know, funny little illustration, Morbus Sabbaticus. The word in this passage that's translated as neglect has a couple of meanings that, that it can mean. The first is to cause something to remain or, or leave. The second meaning is to separate connection with someone or something. But in the sense, because these Greek words are used in different senses, okay, in the sense that it is used here in this verse is to say to forsake, abandon, or desert. It's as if the author is telling these believers not to abandon the gathering of the church. Don't abandon getting together with the church to worship the Lord. Don't desert the church. Unfortunately, there were already some who were in the habit of doing this. Now, this is concerning for a few reasons. Perhaps the most frightening is that I don't think people understand the great danger they face in skipping church. It's just one Sunday. It's just, you know, I'm just tired. We were out late. The lake's open. In our world, we think of our faith as private instead of personal. Your faith in Jesus, your relationship with Jesus, it is personal, but it's really not private. See, we live in America, a very individualistic culture, and so we want to tell people that they don't have any say in what we do with our own lives. But as your pastor, like when I see that in people, it just it grieves me. Throughout church history, Christians, thousands of years of church history, Christians have found this absolutely vital. Can we just agree? Can we just agree that we want to live a biblical Christianity? That the Bible, the Word of God, is the source of what we believe and do. And we want to live out a biblical Christianity. What the Bible describes as truly following Jesus and whatever's in here is what the Lord says is biblical Christianity. That's the thing I want to be about. And one of those things is not forsaking the gathering of the church. But let's talk about what you miss when you don't come to church. Let's, let's talk about when you, when you don't come to church to worship with the church, what you miss. Back in 2015, there was an article that was posted on the For the Church website by a guy who was a local church pastor, and he explained in the introduction of this article that his denomination was experiencing a tragedy. They were missing about 10 million people. They claimed 16 million church members in all of their churches in this denomination, but on a given Sunday, there were only about 6 million in the pews or in the chairs. Because of the critical importance of corporate worship for the life of a Christian, this was a sobering and discouraging statistic for him, and his article that he wrote was born out of that concern. It's dangerous for anyone who professes Christ to regularly miss church with their church family. His article contained five dangers of skipping church, and I just want to address these because they're right on the money and often things that we don't think about when we decide to neglect the gathering of the saints. So here are five dangers or five things you miss when you skip church. And guys, please listen, friends. I am not talking about you're sick and you can't come to church. All right, I consider that being providentially hindered, and if you're sick, 
please don't come to church, <laughs> okay? That's, that's, that is a main reason why we still have an online is because uh, if you're sick and you still want to hear the sermon live, it's not the same as gathering in person. It's not the same as coming to church, uh, but that's why it's there, okay? So I'm not talking about if you're providentially hindered from coming, okay? So don't, please don't misconstrue that. So the number one reason from, from his article, he says, you will miss out on God's primary design for your spiritual growth and well-being. You'll miss out on God's primary design for your spiritual growth and your well-being. The central aspect of corporate worship, that's us getting together and worshiping like we are here right now, the central aspect of that is the preaching of God's word. It's why it has the longest time slot. It's why it's the focal point of the service is to gather and hear God's word proclaimed. The proclamation of the scriptures is God's primary means for a disciple of Jesus to grow in spiritual maturity. And when a professing Christian misses church, they're missing out on God's prescribed process for spiritual growth. Um, yes, you still, to grow spiritually, you still need to be studying the word on your own. <laughs> okay? Um, I can't do all that for you on a Sunday morning. But this is how God has designed this. Number two, the second thing you miss, or second danger of skipping church, is you disobey God. You disobey God. Corporate worship is not optional for a Christian. According to verses 24 and 25, I, I don't see how you could get to it being optional. Author and Pastor Greg Gilbert comments on this passage, and here's what he says. He said, At the very least, therefore, we have to say that for every Christian, attendance at church gatherings is not optional. The author of Hebrews, and therefore the Holy Spirit himself, commands Christians to be present when the believers to whom he or she belongs gather. God's people ought to strive to keep God's commands. And one of his commands is meeting together regularly for corporate worship. Uh, the third thing that you miss out on when you skip church, or the third danger, uh, this one hit me the hardest. This one hits me the hardest. And it's this. When you, when you skip church, you make a statement to the world that God is not worthy of worship. You make a statement to the world that God's not worthy of worship. See, what we spend our time on shows what we truly value. And if you miss church in order to sleep or to attend a sporting activity, what does that say about the worth you ascribe to God? And again, I'm not talking about something happened. There's a special circumstance. Okay? Replacing your church's regularly scheduled worship time with some other activity demonstrates that God is not actually worthy of our worship. Something else is. Something else is more worthy of that time. Unfortunately, this is the attitude and conduct of unbelievers, not of God's people. Someone may say, well, pastor, I, I worship best when I'm out on the lake with my fishing pole or, or hiking out in nature. I would challenge you, can you point me to something in Scripture that would justify that as an appropriate way to gather together with other people to worship? The rest of the church isn't with you out there. That's just not what we see in the New Testament. We see believers gather together to sing, pray, hear the preaching of God's word together, and encourage one another. 
In your free time, you may want to do this thing where you go out to the lake or you hike, and that's fine, and you can worship God alone out there uh, in your free time, but that's not what the Bible talks about when it's talking about us gathering for worship. When you skip church, you're worshiping something. You're worshiping that thing you choose over gathering with the church. Number four, this one I think is also huge. You can't minister to anyone. You miss out, when you skip church, you miss out on ministering to other people. Because we're supposed to be ministering to one another. Too often, people think that corporate worship is only about getting our spiritual needs met. And therefore, if they don't have any spiritual needs at that time, then there's no reason for them to attend. The problem with this view of worship, though, is that it's too individualistic, it's too self-centered. As Christians, our lives are to be spent serving, helping, and encouraging others, not consuming. Missing church robs you of an opportunity to serve someone other than yourself. If you're gone on Sunday morning, you can't offer a word of encouragement to someone who needs it. You can't welcome an unbeliever who doesn't usually come to church. You can't pray with a fellow member who's suffering. You can't encourage the other members with your voice during times of corporate singing. You can't encourage your pastor, amen, with your presence while he preaches the sermon that he's labored over all week. These are just a few ways you, can, you can't serve if you're absent on a Sunday morning. And the last one that I think we all forget about is this. What do you miss when you skip church? You miss out on a foretaste of heaven. You miss out on a foretaste of heaven. God created us to worship him. That is the primary reason you exist. This is why the church was redeemed. And this is what God's people will do when Jesus returns and restores our fallen world. Revelation 22.3 gives us a picture of it. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Let me illustrate in this way. In 1988, there's three whales that became trapped under a thick sheet of ice near uh, Point Barrow, Alaska. And there was a movie made about this a few years ago, but I don't think very many people saw it. In an attempt to rescue the whales, the rescuers dug a series of breathing holes in the ice leading back out to the ocean. And two of the three whales were rescued because they were able to get the oxygen they needed as they were guided in the correct direction out to sea. Similarly, Sunday morning worship is like a string of breathing holes that the Lord provides for his people, guiding and sustaining them until they make it to their true home in heaven. What if we looked at Sunday mornings like that? What if we looked at our gathering as worship as breathing holes, getting air and leading us to the right direction until we arrive at our true home in heaven? Jesus died for a people. He died for his church, his body, his bride. And Ed Stetzer says, you can't love Jesus and hate his wife. The church is the bride of Christ. That's how scripture describes her. We should be living out this life together in community with one another as Christ's representatives and his people here on earth. And if you're out there and you've struggled with this, 
or you feel like I'm casting accusation at you, I want you to know that the gospel is true and you can repent and God can change your heart on this. I want to focus in on, on really one kind of final part of this. And that's when he tells us to encourage others all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, time is short. Time is short. I don't, I don't have any, like, date for you or anything like that. I'm not that guy, okay? But the day is drawing near when salvation will be realized. When Jesus will return for his church and the end of all things will come. And what I want to say is we're supposed to encourage each others, there's others, each other, as we see that day drawing near, because it's nearer today than it was yesterday. And implied in that, because salvation is near, implied in that is also that judgment, for those who don't know Jesus, also draws near. Friends, this should put urgency in our mission urgency in our hearts to serve each other well and to evangelize the lost and to draw near to God because the day draws near. I'm going to invite our musicians to come forward as I kind of move towards the end here. We are all prone to wander. One of my favorite old worship songs is Come Thou Fount. I listened to it this morning while I was getting ready. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're all prone to wander. We, guys, we start coming to church. We're like, I found a good church. All right, I'm good to go. And we, like, we set it on autopilot. We need to wake up. We need to actively, consciously continue to draw near to God. Friends, no one will drift towards God. No one drifts towards God. We're prone to wandering, to drifting away. But listen to this. James 4, 6 through 8 says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We need to draw near to God, and we have the promise that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We need to continually draw near to each other as well. Our mutual concern for one another should be expressed, not just in hugs, although we love hugs around here, but should be expressed in exhorting one another, which includes encouragement, but also warning and reproof. And the best form of exhorting one another is Scripture. It's based on Scripture. We're reminded that the day of the Lord is drawing near, and that's a sober reminder of our urgency that should be and an encouragement and loving reproof of each other within the body of Christ. I want to help you, and I want you to help me by us encouraging one another, but also reproving one another and correcting one another in love because we don't have time to play church games. We don't have time to mess around. We have a mission. We have a gospel. And we need to be about the mission. 
I heard a pastor that you would all know if I said his name, but I'm not going to say his name right now. But he said this. When things in your life happen, not, not when, or not, not if, when. When things in your life happen, you're going to need God and the church, and you better be close to both of them. Steve Timms, in his book, Total Church, said, everyone loves community until it infringes on their decision-making. Everyone loves the idea of, of faith community, of being a church and everything, until it begins to infringe on their decision-making. So here's the question for today. Have you lost your appetite because of neglect? When I read earlier about the Chinese famine... They had lost, not, not, they weren't just hungry, they lost their appetite because it had been neglected for so long. Have you neglected things in your spiritual life, whether it be attending church or whether, uh, I feel kind of weird saying that because you're sitting here right now. <laughs> like you're all here, right? Um, but maybe it's something else in your spiritual life. Maybe it's your time with the Lord. Maybe it's prayer, taking that access that we have and, and, and going to God on a regular basis. Whatever that is, have you lost your appetite for it because it's been neglected for so long in your life? Then I would just want to tell you lovingly, repent and believe the good news. Because Jesus died for your sin, and that includes that sin as well. He didn't leave that one out and you're sunk. That's not how it works. It's once and for all, for all your sins, past, present, and future. And he beckons you to run back towards him and experience all that he has for you in the kingdom as part of the local church. Friends, we can't do this alone. You can't do this alone, so stop trying and run to Jesus. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for this time of uh, just diving deeply into your word. God, I pray you would uh, just imprint these truths on our hearts and help us to live lives of repentance. God, I, I, I want to live a life of obedience, but I know I'm going to mess that up and I want to live a life of repentance that you would quickly bring me to repentance and, and convict me of sin when it happens in my life. Help us be a repenting people. Help us be a people who, through grace-fueled effort, follow your commands and just soak in your love and your sacrifice on the cross that made all of this possible, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Would you sing with us?